Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. The ASX 200 has just produced its worst month in a year. Uh, S&P 500 worst month since March 2020. Uh, international markets quite a bit choppier than they have been. So we're starting to get a lot of questions from listeners and from investors about whether or not this is time to head for the exits or at least start moderating your investment strategy. Market timing is always difficult, but it's worth getting some input about where we find ourselves and what the signals tell us about the potential direction for markets. Today, I'm joined by Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management, who really needs no introduction. Roger's one of our most popular guests. He manages money for many investors and he comments regularly on markets and more. Many of our listeners follow him closely. Roger, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Gemma. So, Roger, you've recently published a piece, and I'm kind of giving the uh, the story away here, but I think it's fantastic to talk about, about why you're still bullish about equities, and you've given three reasons. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, first point to make, though, is that when I say I'm bullish, uh, it's because I believe that there are companies you will make a lot of money out of by investing in them, and at the end of this podcast, we'll go through some of those examples. Um, but, but, but so I'm not just saying the market's going up. Uh, what I'm saying is that there'll be opportunities to invest and you'll still do very, very well. I mean, a, you know, a classic example is it really doesn't matter what happens to equities in aggregate if you own Sydney airports. Sydney airports is underbid. Uh, it's, it's, there's a takeover offer on the table for it at the moment at a, at a price that's higher than where the shares are trading at the moment. So you're probably not going to participate in a market sell-off if you own that stock. And that's that's probably the simplest example I can give of why I'm bullish, because I think that there are investments and thematics that you can invest in uh, that will do well for your portfolio, irrespective of what happens to the market, market in aggregate. So, so with that um, caveat um, stated, uh, I think there's three reasons to be bullish or to be optimistic. And the first one is that um, we're on a path to reopening now, uh, both overseas, obviously, and in Australia. And, and I actually think that the, um, the macroeconomic data that's related to that opening or reopening and the central bank monetary policy settings, which necessarily are going to be dovish, meaning they're going to be supportive, of the economy for the time being. I'll explain why in a little while. I think they're overwhelming a lot of the other fears and concerns that are out there, whether it's the Evergrande fiasco, whether it's um, US, uh, the US government shutting down because funding can't be agreed. Uh, you know, all of those issues, I think, are, are, are sidelines um, compared to the positive macroeconomic data and the necessity of constant monetary and fiscal support. Um, so that's the first reason. And the, the other thing I'll say about reopening is that in Australia, we, we've really got the US and Europe to look forward to or to look towards to see what's happening in their countries as they reopen. So what we know now is that there are spikes in infections. There's no doubt about that. Um, but severe illness and hospitalizations and fatalities 
remain really subdued. And so that's true whether you're looking at Singapore or you're looking in uh, at Israel or the UK and, and various other countries. So we've got a really good path ahead of us. We can see what's going to happen in Australia. Uh, you don't want to get COVID, obviously. Um, uh, and, and in aggregate, we'll see cases go up, but we know that we'll just get on with business because hospitals won't be overwhelmed uh, and deaths won't, won't spike um, the same way that we might see spikes in infections. And so, so that's the, the first reason. Um, we know that by October, late October or November and December, we're going to reach the, the targets in terms of coverage. ACT, for example, is now over 93% um, uh, first dose. So we know that people have their second dose once they've had the first dose. So, you know, really 95% vaccination coverage isn't out of the realms of possibility for Australia, and that's obviously extremely positive. So that's the first reason. We're on a reopening path, and that's going to be good for earnings growth for companies. The second one is interest rates. Um, and, and there are some bearish arguments around low interest rates ending and bond rates are starting to climb slightly again uh, and US Central Bank, uh, the Federal Reserve and the RBA and so on, they'll eventually be forced to raise rates. They have both said, both the Federal Reserve, um, Jerome Powell and uh, in Australia, Philip Lowe, have both explained that rates aren't going up anytime soon. The market has a tendency to jump at shadows it has a tendency to want to be scared of stuff um, and it likes creating an environment where investors are nervous so that the investors feel that they need advisors to advise them. Um, so the market tends to jump at shadows, but we know they're not going to raise rates. And more importantly, even if the US Federal Reserve's goal of maximum employment is achieved, if inflation reaches 2%, or if they're on track to exceed 2% for some time, which is the statement that they made that would be the, the requirement to start raising rates, they can raise rates four times and the real rate, which is the difference between the nominal interest rate and inflation, would still be negative. And a negative real rate is very, very positive for equities. Um, and so, you know, even if they do raise rates, we've still got negative real rates and that's bullish for equities. From a valuation perspective, and from a popularity perspective. And then the third reason is monetary support. Um, the economy is by no means, the recovery is by no means even. Uh, it's not smooth, it's not um, predictable, and it's not set in stone. And so central banks are in no rush to pull back on their monetary support. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, I really do believe that we're going to see an environment that is positive for equities in aggregate notwithstanding that there is the ever-present risk, and ever-present is a really key word, and I think people sort of gloss over it when others say it, but ever-present means there is always the imminent risk of a 10 to 15% correction in equities. You've just got to live with that. If that happens, then under the environmental scenario that I've just, uh, just discussed, that would be an opportunity rather than something you should run away from. Oh, you've said something that our guys will really get excited about because <laughs> there's many, many investors at NABtrade who are waiting for a 10 to 15% pullback to uh, to buy some more. They were aggressive buyers last year and I can guarantee you that when uh, when we see some falls, we've seen buying at 2%, so uh, 10 to 15 would get people a bit excited, I think. Well, yeah, look, I, I, it has a perverse outcome though, Gemma. What happens is... You know, two, we've had a 6% fall from the highs for the ASX 200 already or thereabouts. And 
and people are still buying that. But when you get down to 15%, believe it or not, the reverse happens and people start running for the hills. They think it's going to get a lot worse. So rather than the rather than becoming more excited because, you know, the blueberries at the supermarket are now a dollar a punnet, not $7.99 a punnet, and instead of loading up, they actually run the other way. They think something's wrong with the blueberries. I'm not touching them. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, it's a perverse outcome. But as initially people buy the dips and then as the dips get deeper, they start selling and start running away from it. So my, my suggestion would be not to do that because I think the long-term environment is really positive. And one thing I didn't say is everyone's worried about inflation. Um, I think it'll be temporary. Um, and I think structurally we're in a world of lower inflation because wage growth is, is under pressure. Um, that doesn't mean wages won't grow, but they won't grow anything like what they've grown in the past. And that's because the proportion of unionised labour is much, much lower. It's about a third of what it was 30 years ago, uh, both in the United States and in Australia. And then while we've all been distracted talking about COVID, the amount of money that's been invested in IT, particularly in automation, has gone through the roof. And so automation displaces labour and it puts people out of work and that's debt, that puts downward pressure on wages. And both of those things are structural. They're not cyclical. They're not trends that are going to they're going to change. Um, they're long-term structural changes that uh, that are in place and set, uh, and it's not going anywhere. So, so I think that, as well as the three three comments that I made earlier about um, reopening, monetary support, and low interest rates, um, you know, I think all of that's going to conspire to be a positive for equities for at least the next twelve months. There's so much in there that we can talk about. Let's start with reopening because it's on everybody's mind. I'm in New South Wales, which I've mentioned before, and we're getting just that little bit closer. You can feel it coming, uh, which is exciting. And for those of you in Victoria, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It just must be horrendous, and I hope it's coming soon for you guys as well. But a lot of our investors have been obviously thinking long and hard about the reopening trade for a long time. We saw people buying travel stocks last year, uh, particularly during the sort of COVID crash, if we can call it that. And clearly a lot are feeling that trade might have run its course because we're seeing a lot of selling in travel stocks in particular at the moment. Travel, various other things that are obvious beneficiaries of reopening, what do you think is going to do well? Yeah, um so the last time we spoke, which I think was at the start of the year, um, I mentioned, I'm pretty sure I mentioned Carnival Cruises as one of the sort of reopening or return to travel stocks that would do really well, um, and, and it, it has. Uh, and it will. I think, I think they will continue to do well. So we've made a lot of money out of a company called IDP Education, um, which is uh, the company that owns the majority stake of the IELTS uh, which is the International English Language Testing System. And uh, you'd think that they're not going to do well in an environment where they're testing people for migration uh, and because there is no migration. But, but they have been making money despite the fact that they're not placing students into Australian universities at the moment and despite the fact that there's very little or no immigration in Australia. And it's because they're exposed to overseas revenue opportunities as well. And, and because of that, that's where we've made, that's where we've done well in the initial part of the reopening. So knowing that Australia was on an eradication path rather than a suppression path meant that 
You didn't want to own businesses that were reliant on Australia reopening, but we could see overseas was reopening. And so then there were businesses like IDP Education um, or even corporate travel management that earns about 80% of its revenue from the US and Europe. And they were reopening. And we could see the numbers, for example, for leisure travel in the US um, bookings for June and July back at the start of the year were starting to go up quite a lot. In fact, by I think it was July or August, bookings were back to 95%. This is for domestic air travel. Um, we're at 95% of pre-COVID levels. So we knew it was bouncing back really hard. Uh, and consequently, we, we knew that there would be money to be made in these uh, domestic companies that had overseas revenue opportunities. Now, that's starting to shift. And so... Um, so whereas we made money out of IDP, corporate travel management, Webjet from sort of overseas reopenings in advance of Australia, what's happening now is that Australia is reopening and eventually the international border for Australia will open as well. And so a business that we bought uh, a couple of months ago that's done very well, and we don't think the story's over, um, is Flight Centre. Um, now, that's, that's a company that's run pretty hard. It's up probably 70% in the last few months. Um, but here's the thing, there are for domestic-based uh, fund managers, particularly small-cap fund managers, there's very, very few opportunities, very limited opportunities to invest or in, and to leverage that reopening thematic. Uh, and so we think that those companies that give it fund managers that opportunity to leverage the reopening, because there's so few and far between, because... Flight Centre is really liquid. It's been trading, I think, about $70 million a day last week, which is super liquid for a small cap. Um, we think they've got good scope to become very, very popular and therefore very, very expensive. Um, the travel agent market uh, was ravaged because we were in lockdown more than most countries. In fact, you know, we were locked down for longer than most countries, even though we had less COVID than most countries, um, perhaps because we were locked down more. Um, uh, and we had the lowest rate of infections and and travel agents really couldn't make any money. They, they were shut down and so the stock suffered, flight centres share suffered. Um, and the other reality is that flight centres also heavily shorted. Uh, in fact, it's the most shorted stock in Australia uh, in proportion to the number of shares that it has. Um, and the reason for that is it's it's actually Hong Kong hedge funds um, they they saw the death of brick-and-mortar travel agents overseas and decided that the same thing would happen here in Australia. But what they didn't count on or what they've got wrong, we think, is that Flight Centre have a, an amazing franchise model. They provide their agents with loads of support. And the other thing is that Aussies travel further and more frequently than our friends overseas, and that makes a travel agent in Australia, particularly a brick-and-mortar travel agent, quite valuable. The other thing is that they... they, they in the past demonstrated that they've been able to win market share. Um, and so we have lots of uh, lots of competitors that have lost share to, um, to Flight Centre. Now, yes, it's true Flight Centre are cutting their physical footprint in half. There's no doubt about that. Um, they've talked about that. Uh, in fact, it's probably a little bit more than half. Um, but they're actually estimating that they're only going to give up about 10 to 15% of their reach so we think that they are going to take a lot of market share during the recovery of outbound international travel. They've demonstrated their ability to do that before. And as um, Gemma, as we were talking about before we started this podcast, you know, I mentioned that it's going to be really complicated for Aussies to travel, particularly with families. You're going to need lots of documents, 
lots of validations for vaccinations and, and different countries will require different things, even if you're just transiting. So travellers are gonna need, going to need a lot of advice um, uh, before they travel. And I think Flight Centre is perhaps uniquely positioned to be able to provide that advice. So it's going to take a lot of share. Um, what's interesting is that even though the shares have rallied, and I mentioned earlier they've gone up about 70% just in the last few months, <clears throat> the shorts haven't been unwound. So they're still heavily shorted. Uh, and if those shorts start to be unwound, you could see the share price really, really rocket. Um, uh, I know the question on many people's lips will be to what degree has the optimism around reopening been factored into the share price already? Um, I think the important thing is, um, you know, it's easy to look at, you've got to look at where it started from and we're not going to go back to where the share price started from now. Um, and as I said earlier, there really is a limit to the supply of stocks that are, or companies that are leveraged to a reopening. So it could be some time before this theme actually runs its course. Um, we know share prices follow earnings. Um, the earnings do need to come through. But when we look at the consensus uh, earnings forecasts, those consensus numbers were for a return to pre-COVID earnings by FY23. And there's a pretty good argument that's going to be quicker than that. And I think when the sell-side analysts start looking at their expectations, which they set when things were really dire, really terrible, when they re-look uh, at those estimates, they'll upgrade those estimates. And we think they'll, so we think there'll be an earnings recovery and it'll be faster than what analysts currently expect. And then we also believe that the multiple investors will be willing to pay, uh, will be higher than what they've paid in the past. Uh, and that will be ref a reflection of the fact that um, that this company really is one of the few opportunities to to get exposure to the reopening of international borders in Australia. Well, that's really interesting. I yeah, I did find our conversation about how complex international travel will be really interesting. Uh, someone I'm close to does some extraordinary international travel and will go to sort of uh, lesser known areas of Africa and lesser known areas of many places in the same trip. Uh, yep. So they'll, they'll go sort of Europe, UK, Africa, or they'll go uh, UAE, Africa, US, that sort of thing. And I can't begin to imagine how complicated that will be when borders do reopen. Like it'd just be an absolute nightmare. So you will, I imagine in that scenario, at least need a lot of help to get that organised. It's yeah. all for business. It's not like it's uh, uh, right. it's all voluntary. And 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 so what will happen is companies like Flight Centre not only will they recover quickly, um, but they will take share. They'll be they will be growing faster than their market. And so you know, I think I think investors will be willing to pay a higher multiple of earnings for a business that's growing faster than the market that it operates in. And they've demonstrated in the past their ability to do that. And I think assuming, assuming, and by the way, everything that I've talked about, um, uh, there is a caveat. And the caveat is that we don't get, you know, we're 40% vaccinated globally at the moment, fully vaccinated. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, it presumes, my bullish scenario presumes that the other 60% don't provide hosting for, the, for a, a variant of the virus that evades the current crop of vaccines, which would, of course, set us back, back to square one, and that would be a complete disaster for equities. So I'm assuming that's not going to happen and we're on the path to reopening and everything goes smoothly. Yeah, I think a lot of people are hoping that, uh, and obviously vaccinating 
developing countries is going to be a big challenge. Mm. Coming to one of your other points, and I find this super interesting, we talk about it frequently, low interest rates, quantitative easing, they've been part of our landscape for so long. We probably have plenty of investors who have no experience of markets before them. The idea of borrowing at 7% even is probably foreign to a lot of people. Let alone uh, 17. Yeah, yeah. Well, 17 was before my time, but 7 definitely wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I find yeah. it kind of amazing. Uh, so when eventually rates will have to return to a higher level. You've made the point that they can do four rate increases in the US and still have negative real rates. Yeah. Thoughts about a taper tantrum? You might want to explain for everybody what a taper tantrum is, but markets do not like increasing rates, even if uh, even if there's plenty of potential for them to stay negative in real terms. So, so there's conventional monetary policy, which is the movement of short-term interest rates. So, um, uh, central banks like the Reserve Bank of Australia raising the overnight cash rate, for example, or lowering the overnight cash rate. That's conventional monetary policy. And then you have unconventional monetary policy, which is all the stuff that's been happening since the GFC. And that's, for example, buying government bonds, monetizing debt and so on. So, you know, these are... These are um, I've got to be careful I don't mix my metaphors. There's fiscal policy and monetary policy as well. So, uh, you know, and, and debt monetization is probably sort of a um, fiscal policy rather than monetary policy. So I'll describe what a taper tantrum is. A taper tantrum, a tantrum, we know what a tantrum is. Anyone who's had kids knows what a tantrum is. And, you know, everyone throws themselves on the floor and the kids throw themselves on the floor and they say, oh, I want chocolate, you know, whatever it is. Um the, the market, the idea of a, a tantrum in the market is the stock market plunging because it wants more monetary stimulus and that monetary stimulus, that unconventional monetary stimulus, the buying of bonds by central banks, and when bonds, when central banks buy bonds, they pay cash, so cash is injected into the economy, and tapering that is the reduction of that stimulus, of that mode of stimulus, so reducing how much how much bond buying actually occurs um, and, and the market gets nervous about that because really the market's buoyancy to date since the GFC has really been dependent on that un, those unconventional monetary policy settings uh, and any ending to that um, sparks fear into markets. But, Gemma, what I would say is market crashes occur when something unanticipated happens. So market crashes occur when an unknown unknown is hits the market or it confronts investors. This a taper a tapering of unconventional monetary policy would be well flagged. It would be jawboned by central banks. They would describe it happening next year or the year after. And then as we get closer, they would say, yep, look, it's it's going to happen tomorrow. The market sells off. No, it's not happening tomorrow. We've decided it's going to happen next year. And they, they've done it before where they scare the market. They get one of the Fed governors to scare the market. And the next day they say, no, no, that's not going to happen now. So the market gets used to living in an environment where it's going to happen and then when it happens, it's not scary because we all expected it and the market doesn't crash. Uh, and so that's why I'm, I'm not concerned um, about a taper tantrum. I think it'll be well flagged 
Uh, Central banks will jawbone about it for a long, long time before it happens and will be well and truly, it'll be well and truly digested as a reality before it happens and and the market won't sell off on that. It'll be something, if the market does crash, it'll be because of something we've not anticipated. That's a helpful perspective for people and, uh, you know, those who've been around a while will know that uh, there was a taper tantrum in 2016 when everyone got very nervous about the possibility of the Federal Reserve in the US effectively not giving as much money out to everybody, <laughs> not making it as easy to borrow and so on. They all got really cranky and the market sold off 10%. So, you know, uh, a, a classic example, I just had just before we started our podcast today, a very close friend of mine sent me an email with a link to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, Joe Biden saying that, you know, a meteor is going to hit uh, the US economy if Congress doesn't approve uh, the funding the funding package for the US government. Um and, uh, and, you know, I just I went online and I thought, you know, I've, I've seen this so many times before where funding hasn't been approved. Um, how often does it occur? And you know what happened in 1980, 81, 84, 86, 90, 95, 96, 2013, 2018, 2019. So, you know, the, it's, it's really important that we don't jump at headlines and that we look back through history and ask ourselves, has this happened before? How did the market deal with it before? Because it's more than likely the market will deal with it the same way this time. Oh, that's so funny. Yes. So that's another one that everyone's worried about at the moment, the raising of the debt ceiling. And I remember as a child seeing it on Behind the News. You know, Behind yes. the News is a fantastic yeah. program on the ABC that sort of explains the news to kids. I remember saying to my parents, oh, the US, they're not going to be able to pay, they're not going to be able to pay their staff. And my parents being like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I was a child. It was a weird thing to worry about anyway, but it's yeah. quite funny. So we're talking about jumping at shadows, but also the extraordinary role that governments and central banks are playing in markets now. And it's been nonstop since the GFC, the incredible amount of stimulus that has been pumped into the economy and therefore into markets. The fiscal side is where voters, taxpayers, uh, companies and everybody else are given stimulus directly in various ways and also indirectly with tax cuts and all sorts of things. So the challenge then becomes winding that back. The federal government here are going to wind back some stimulants, but it's quite difficult to do. I mean, it's well known that voters do not like having things taken away. Are you concerned about any risks on that front? Um, In short, no. Uh, And there's a couple of couple of reasons, but primarily if you look at, so so the issue is, the real issue is that when you know, government largesse has to be funded uh, and they typically fund it with debt um, and, you know, they borrow money by issuing bonds to um, external investors, uh, that's how they fund these things. And then the question becomes, how do they pay off that debt? Well, what we've actually seen in Japan um, is uh, Japan really has been able to monetize, and I'll talk about monetizing debt in just a moment, but they've been able to monetize a significant portion of their debt without any major economic consequences. Now, that what that does is it provides a bit of a template for the US and Europe and Australia for their central bankers who might otherwise doubt um, that policy approach. And so what is monetizing debt? Well, 
government borrow it's it's the government borrowing money from the central bank to finance public spending instead of either selling bonds to private investors which is what i mentioned a moment ago or raising taxes um and then the central bank who buys the government debt because they're buying the debt they actually have to pay cash for that debt so they are effectively printing money now in the past this is money creation. This is what we call money printing. And it's been banned in lots of countries because in the past it, it created a dangerous risk of runaway inflation. But as I mentioned earlier, I think most central bankers around the world now agree that inflation is not going to go anywhere um, and that's because wage inflation has been pushed so low. And, in fact, if anything, you know, wages might have to be supported by a universal approach to wages when, you know, you get a whole generation of people unemployed because they've been replaced by robots or automation of some sort. You only need to look at car manufacturing plants now and see how few people are employed in those factories compared to the number of people who used to be to see that, you know, that there really is a risk that um, a lot of people will be unemployed permanently and that will push wages down and therefore inflation is less likely to be a risk. And so the Japanese model of monetizing debt uh, really is a template that means that central bankers aren't worried at all about how they're going to pay this debt off because what they'll do is they'll just issue bonds to the central bank, the central bank will give them cash, they'll take the cash to pay down the um, private debt, uh, the bonds that they've uh, issued to private investors. Uh, and so, yeah, I think at the moment it's not really something investors need to worry about. It is always on the horizon because there is so much debt now uh, and we really are in uncharted territory with respect to how this is all going to play out. But if Japan, Japan is the model adopted by the rest of the world and if everyone's doing it, um, then really no one is going to hold any other country to account because they're all doing the same thing. Um, they really can't point the finger. Uh, you know, in an environment where that becomes a problem, the only safe place to invest uh, would be surplus nations. So that would mean China. But China has its own issues and you don't want to invest there for all of those issues. Uh, and consequently, um, you know, we really have no other, there really is um, uh, no other alternative. Uh, this, is, this is the world we live in and we're investing in this world and so continue to buy businesses that are growing in that environment. That's probably the best articulation I've heard of, of where we find ourselves, actually. This is the world we live in and it's the world we invest in now because so many of us who are not new to markets find this environment so foreign. It's so different to what we were led to expect would happen. With. Well, it doesn't, yeah, it's just not economics 101. It wasn't what we were <laughs> right? It, no. It's happening. You know, I was taught... I was taught M1 money supply or M2 money supply, increase that significantly and you'll get inflation. And, in, and, and money supply has been increasing in the United States at an exponential rate since the 1960s, and yet since 1980, inflation has been declining. So that, you know, that economics 101, what we were taught just hasn't happened, just not real. Yeah, you're 100% correct, and it's, it's worth rethinking all your assumptions on that basis you kind of have to face the reality of the environment we're in yep. so you were on this podcast back in January it was our new year special talking oh, about okay. I knew the, it was at the start of the year yeah it was perfect uh the outlook for 2021 which was 
It was a bold move on your part <laughs> trying to provide an outlook after the year we'd had. But you were saying you were very optimistic about markets and that has worked out very nicely. Has anything changed to shake your confidence? You've made the point about potential variants in COVID that present very significant downside risk. But has anything else happened that worries you a bit? Um, short answer, no. Um, I think... I think we're still on the same optimistic course. I think this year, this financial year could prove to surprise everyone on the upside, notwithstanding, as I mentioned earlier, that ever-present risk of a correction. That would be an opportunity. I do think investors um, need to need to not buy garbage. You know, you need to make sure you're owning businesses that have some reason why uh, they're going to either do well or investors are going to want more of them. Uh, or both. And so I think there's three themes investors might want to try and leverage. The first one is structural growers. So look for businesses that are growing irrespective of the conditions in the economy, irrespective of what COVID does. And so an example throughout the year that I've been talking about are businesses like data centres. You know, I think I think they'll do well. Now, I, I should confess, we own Macquarie Telecom. We think that's worth more than $100 a share. Um, and we think it'll get there, uh, but we've recently sold Next DC. So you do have to be picky about which ones you own and, and need to understand why you're buying them. But structural growth is a theme that I think investors will do very well out of, businesses that are going to grow no matter what the economy does. Um, a more tactical thematic that I think investors should consider, and we've talked about this already today, is the reopening trade uh, and looking for businesses that are leveraged to a reopening. We've talked about some of those. And then the third one, which we haven't mentioned, and I only mentioned briefly and because I'm conscious of time, is decarbonisation. We think this is a once-in-a-lifetime switch. You know, I, I know that back in the 70s there was an oil minister in the um, – a Saudi oil minister. He was a, a prince – um, I can't think of his name, but he uh, he had a fantastic phrase. He said, the Stone Age did not end for a lack of stones. Um, in other words, and he was referring back in the 70s, he was referring to the fact that we won't run out of oil. We will end up leaving oil in the ground, just as, just as humans left stones on the ground because we came up with um, what followed the stone, the Bronze Age. We came up with bronze, uh, you know, that we left... New technology replaced the old technology. We didn't need stones anymore. And the same thing will happen with oil. We will leave oil in the ground because we won't need it anymore. Particularly, I mean, the only use for oil outside of fuel, you know, that I think has, you know, similar sort of scale is plastics and single-use plastics are going to be banned as well. And so we will leave oil in the ground. We're going to switch to whether it's um, hydrogen or electricity, and I don't know what the winning technology will be, but I suspect it'll be electricity because it's got the big momentum behind it. It's a bit like Betamax and VHS tapes years ago. Um, we went with VHS, the world went with VHS, not because it was better, better technology. In fact, it was inferior to uh, Betamax, but it got more popular and it had more support behind it. And so at the moment that seems to be uh, EVs. And that EV demand... Um, uh, which we know is happening and the tipping point's already been reached. We saw with Volkswagen's um, uh, power day earlier this year, they're going to spend something like 40 billion euro uh, on networks of fast charging stations. They're, all of their model range is going to be electric. Um, that's from Porsche to Audi to Volkswagen and Skoda. 
and then not to be outdone, Ford and General Motors Holden, they're going to spend equal amounts, 20 to 30 billion US dollars each uh, on the same thing. Uh, so this is all happening and that's going to raise demand massively for the ingredients that go into lithium-ion batteries, which is the dominant technology at the moment. Um, and that means copper, uh, that means lithium, of course, and Australia's blessed with copper miners and lithium miners and explorers that are very close to production. Uh, and so investors, I think, will do very, very well from that theme over the long run. It'll be more volatile than the other two themes, there's no doubt about that. Um, but it's, again, once-in-a-lifetime shift uh, and part of, I think, every investor's portfolio, after speaking to an advisor, of course, who's familiar with your personal needs and circumstances, um, you know, after you've spoken to that advisor, I, I would be surprised if they said it wasn't appropriate to have a small proportion of your portfolio, maybe 5 to 8% perhaps, exposed to this decarbonisation theme. That's so fascinating. You're the second guest in a month to mention that as their, as their big thing that they think uh, that investors need to keep an eye on. We will have to talk a lot more about it. Roger, you guys at Montgomery Investment Management, you produce a lot of great content. And I say that about many groups, but you really do spend the time to produce some excellent, uh, insightful pieces for investors. If they want to find out more, where should they go? Well, we have a blog, uh, rogermontgomery.com. So Montgomery Investment Management is the funds management business, um, but we have a blog that's separate to that. Um, so if you go to rogermontgomery.com, you can subscribe. You don't have to subscribe, but if you do subscribe, you get some of the lock content as well. We try and put out one or two blog posts a day um, about something that's topical or a company that we're following at the moment. I'm about to draft a blog post on Flight Center. Um, and so if you subscribe, you get notifications when you when they've been updated and you can go back and have a look there. Um, Gemma, I hope you don't mind. I, 10 years ago, I wrote a book that became a bestseller on, on investing. Um, you know, and I do really urge investors to go and have a look at that book. Um, it's called Valuable. You can buy it on the blog as well. Um, I wrote it for my kids to explain to them how to invest if I wasn't around. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know a lot of investors have benefited from reading that book. It still sells well. Um, I'm surprised despite it, you know, being written 10 years ago. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that, you know, the lessons in it are timeless. Uh, you know, they, they really will work no matter, you know, whether we're talking about next year, 10 years or in 100 years' time. Uh, so, you know, I really urge investors to, um, to find some good books. It might be valuable. It might be another book. Um, but find some good books and make sure they follow a, a process for investing consistently. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, an absolute pleasure, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received fantastic feedback. Roger's uh, last call with us was very popular indeed. We love hearing about who you'd like to hear from and getting your questions about what you'd like to hear about. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.